has also uh, worked all day before she came to give her talk. Uh, well known to most in the audience, uh, Annie Lukemeyer, who is uh, playing a uh, really very important role in, uh, in uh, the uh, both the tuberculosis service uh, at uh, UCSF and SFGH and the national agenda uh, in our research on, HIV, on, on uh, tuberculosis, uh, both treatment and diagnostics. Uh, she is now uh, an assistant professor at uh, UCSF. Um, any other university, she'd be an associate professor, but she is at UCSF. So without further ado, I introduce uh, Dr. Annie Lutkemeyer. Annie? Hi. So thank you all for staying uh, till the bitter end to hear about TB. Um, I get a lot of questions uh, from people who will say, well, gosh, TB is not gone in the U.S., and why do we have to worry about that? And isn't this, shouldn't we all be worrying about aging in our patients and, and their, their lipids? And all of that is true. But I think coming from California, I don't have to tell folks in this room that even though we have the lowest TB rates that we've had in a long time, um, and we've dipped down in the 10,000 range, um, that TB is increasingly becoming in the United States a really focused disease. It's focused geographically and it's focused epidemiologically. So geographically, um, four states now account for 50% of the TB cases that we see in the U.S., and California is one of those. The others are New York, uh, Florida, and Texas. Um, it's also being uh, focused epidemiologically in um, individuals who are born in countries where they have a high risk of acquiring tuberculosis and come to the U.S. and can get reactivation. And I don't need to tell you that California is a state of, um, of, uh, of emigrants and people who come here. It's a great melting pot, um, but that also helps to drive our TB rates up. And then lastly, it's a disease of HIV, uh, certainly worldwide, where TB is one of the biggest killers of patients with HIV infection, but it's something that we as HIV providers spend a lot of our time thinking about um, and worrying about. So while we don't see a whole lot of active tuberculosis, when we do, it can be a real headache to take care of, and we also have to struggle with latent tuberculosis and accurately making the diagnosis and figuring out who to treat. So I would argue that it is still very timely, particularly for those of us who care for HIV patients in states like California. And San Francisco has three times um, uh, the rate of the overall, uh, the rate of TB of the overall state of California. So we are a hot spot within a hot spot. So we have that dubious honor. So uh, I think it's particularly relevant to us. Um, let me see if I can find the clicker to advance the slides. There we go. So I'm going to start with talking about the diagnosis of latent tuberculosis because I think that's one of the things that we all address every day in our practice, a little bit about the treatment, talk about the timing of antiretroviral therapy in active tuberculosis patients, and then uh, get into the bit of the thorny area of what to treat people with um, and how to handle the myriad drug-drug interactions with antiretroviral therapies. So I'm going to start with a case. Uh, this is a 45-year-old gentleman, newly diagnosed with HIV when he was hospitalized for community-acquired pneumonia. His sputum grew strep pneumo, um, but he also had it sent for uh, AFV at the time uh, due to concern for possible TB, but luckily was negative in smear and uh, culture. He has a low T-cell count and a high viral load, as is unfortunately the case in many of our patients who present with an index diagnosis of an OI, in this case bacterial pneumonia, uh, and their new diagnosis of HIV. 
He was started on uh, antiretroviral therapy during hospitalization, um, uh, given the need to start people early on, um, an application of that clinical trial data. And he comes to see you, um, and as part of your intake, you want to screen him for latent tuberculosis in accordance with the guidelines that recommend that everybody with HIV be screened at least once. And if they have a T cell count of less than 200, they should be screened again when they are immune reconstituted. And we'll go over some of those other guidelines. So what test do you order? Um, and remember, this gentleman has a T-cell count of, it was 60 several weeks ago, but he's now in antiretroviral therapy. Should you order an interferon gamma release assay, or IGRA? And these include quantiferon and the T-spot TB, which are both FDA approved. A tuberculin skin test, otherwise known as a PPD. You should do both, because his T-cell count is low, or you wouldn't do either, because his T-cell count is too low for these to be effective. Okay, so uh, over half of you went with an IGRA, um, and we'll talk about the merits and drawbacks of IGRA and the tuberculin skin test. Um, I think that in general we don't need to do both at the same time, and I would disagree with number four, although we do know there are limits to uh, these tests in low T cells. Um, we still do use them, and if you get a, re a result that's interpretable, it certainly can carry valuable information. So the IGRAs, um, just to have a brief overview of these, they measure free interferon in the case of the quantiferon test, or they measure interferon gamma-releasing cells in the case of T-spot TB after incubation with MTB more specific antigens. As you all can recall, the TST uses PPD, which is sort of a gamish that was very, very cutting edge in the end of the uh, 19th century, less so now. Um, and this is our version of the gamish, which is a, a little bit more specific, but still contains antigens that will cross-react to amkansasii, which can cause clinically significant disease, also sylgii and marinum. The results come back um, as positive, negative, or indeterminate. And unlike tuberculin skin testing, there are not different cutoffs based on risk categories, including HIV infection. So with the PPD, we all spend a lot of time remembering that, you know, 5 millimeters is the cutoff for people who are immunocompromised. 10 millimeters is if you're homeless. There are not cutoffs like that for the IGRA. Maybe there should be, and we may get smarter about learning how to use these. But for right now, no matter who you are, you're either positive, negative, or indeterminate. Um, so what about TB testing um, uh, using these IGRAs at low T cell counts? So we do know, very similar to the tuberculin skin test, that the, TS, uh, the TST is likely to be energic at low T cell counts. So there is a no role for energy panels. Um, when I started in training, people were still using mumps and candida uh, to see if the tuberculin skin test was working correctly. But we now know that that does not correlate with whether or not people are energic to their, uh, to their TB. So really no role for that. Um, so uh, we know that in, I jumped ahead a little bit, in tuberculin skin testing, uh, we do see more energy at uh, low T cell counts. But the problem with tuberculin skin testing is that it doesn't come with a label that says this test didn't react uh, because the T cell count was low. It just comes back as a negative test. And as I mentioned, there's really no role for energy testing. IGRAs do come back saying that they were indeterminate. In other words, that either the test failed to run due to either a high background uh, interferon gamma uh, level or a failure to respond to the internal mitogens. And this is more common in people who have low T cell counts. So we see an indeterminate rate of about 5% in quantiferon tests. And this goes up to about 25% in people with a T cell count of less than 100. 
Same thing in T-spot TB. There is a range of about 3 to 15 percent, but this goes up in people who have a low T-cell count. However, I would say that if you have a person with a low T-cell count and you do an IGRA and the IGRA results are interpretable, these are useful even if there is a low T-cell count. So a positive or a negative test is valuable. However, an indeterminate test should not be read as a partial positive, and I've seen this happen before where people think, well, that probably means it was right on the cutoff, right? I mean, this is like a, it's almost positive. It's not almost positive. It's a test that's not valuable. Um, so you should disregard this test. Um, it's worth repeating it once, um, but I would not repeat it multiple times unless something changes in the patient's immune status. Um, so I have seen people who've had five IGRAs sent in a row, and, and that's really not a helpful uh, way to diagnose uh, disease in that patient, nor a good use of resources. So how do the IGRAs compare to tuberculin skin tests for the diagnosis of LTVI? This is really a trick question because we don't have a good gold standard. I've heard people revert to the TST as a TIN standard, um, which uh, basically is referring to the fact that it's not a very good standard and the IGRA should perform better, but it's very challenging in all of this research to know what the real, uh, to identify true latent tuberculosis disease. So I would caution you uh, to read the studies very carefully um, about what is the gold standard being used for latent tuberculosis. So we know that the quantiferon is more strongly associated with TB risk factors in HIV than the tuberculin skin tests, so sort of indirect evidence suggesting uh, that the IGRAs are well correlated with latent TB, and that there appears to be greater predictive uh, value for subsequent active TB in people who are quantipositive than people who are tuberculin skin test positive in a contact study. And in that study, people did not receive treatment for their, um, uh, for their latent tuberculosis, so they were just observed, uh, which I don't recommend, but that's uh, how it was done in that study. We know that there's a similar predictive value of people who are quantipositive and tuberculin skin test positive in HIV patients undergoing a routine TB screening in another study, again, to predict active tuberculosis. The question often comes up, well, who are you missing, though, if you only send a quantiferon or a T-spot TB? What if their PPD would have been positive? And that's a test that we've had around for over 100 years. Maybe we shouldn't um, uh, be risking it, and we should be sending a quanti and a PPD on everybody. And in this study, there was a small number of people who were uh, discordant, and the people who were quanti-negative tuberculin skin test positive or quanti-indeterminate and tuberculin skin test positive did not go on to develop active disease. Certainly not definitive, but I think it suggests that we're not missing people who are going on to develop active disease in an overwhelming way in the people who are discordant. And we know that much of this discordance may be due to reacting to non-tuberculosis mycobacterium in the case of the tuberculin skin test. Um, so I think that the summary of this data is that it appears that the IGRAs certainly appear to work as well as the tuberculin skin test. And then some studies look like they perform better and maybe more specific. Um, but no test is perfect, and this is an immune-mediated test. And so certainly for patients who have a low T-cell count, um, there are going to be limitations to the performance of the IGRA. One of the selling points had been, though, that this was a quite specific test and that we wouldn't have to worry about false positives because we're using very specific uh, uh, antigen mix um, that's uh, intended to identify TB exposure only. And I think there was a very disturbing article that came out this past year that uh, caused a number of us to question uh, whether or not some of the quanties that uh, we found that were positive may be false positives. And I know in my own clinical practice, if I had people where I could have sworn that, that I would have guessed that their TB test would have come back negative for latent TB, and I've really scratched my head, and I think that this paper has helped to reinforce that for me. 
So this was in Denver, um, and they basically went through um, a number of patients who had a positive quantifiron test, and they just repeated it in everybody. They didn't do anything in the interim. They just repeated it. And what they found is, and this was a relatively small study, you know, they had about 50 patients that they repeated it in, and 75% of them reverted on the second uh, quantifiron test. This is not what we're taught normally to do. Once positive, never useful, right? You're supposed to send it once and then act on the test results. And if it's positive, don't send it again. But I think there are other important things that they found here is that people, um, the likelihood of reversion was highest in people who had no TB risk factors, okay? Uh, so the odds ratio was seven. If people were born in a highly endemic country, they had a very low risk factor for their quantifiron reverting, which I think makes sense. And so my interpretation of these data are that it's reasonable to repeat an IGRA if there's no TB risk factor other than HIV infection. Um, and that we can't draw too many conclusions from the level of the interferon gamma. Uh, many of us thought that you could predict whether or not it was a quote-unquote false positive uh, IGRA based on how high the interferon gamma level is, which many times is now released by the labs. You were less likely to revert if you had a lower interferon gamma level, but many people reverted even with high interferon gamma levels. Now, you could argue maybe the second test was the inaccurate test, and the first test was right. Um, I think that the goal here is not to get twisted up in sending multiple, multiple of these tests. I would repeat it once in patients who have no risk factors, and if it's negative, continue to screen them on a somewhat regular interval. Um, these aren't perfect tests. We don't have a gold standard here. We do our best, um, and there's obviously going to be limitations to the IGRAs, very similar to the tuberculin skin test. We just don't know what all the limitations to the tuberculin skin test are because uh, we don't send them repeat, uh, in a repeated way. And we do know a lot of the limitations that do exist to the tuberculin skin test. So the current recommendations are, as I mentioned, that all HIV-infected patients be tested for latent tuberculosis at the time of HIV diagnosis. And the most current guidelines don't say whether an IGRA or a PPD is preferred. And I agree with that. I think what we, we forget to test people or we think that it's not going to work. I think at the bottom line is we should do something rather than nothing. Um, and that for many labs it's easier to do an IGRA, but we certainly have a lot of data with, with the PPD. If you think someone's at high risk of being PPD positive due to prior BCG vaccination or to exposure to non-tuberculosis mycobacteria, there may be a role for an IGRA, and that might be a more specific test for them. If the initial latent tuberculosis test was performed at a T-cell count of less than 200, it should be repeated when their uh, T-cell count is greater than 200 on antiretroviral therapy because with immune reconstitution, people may regain a response to uh, uh, the TB antigens, and the test may then become positive, indicating true exposure to TB. Annual testing is recommended for people who are considered high risk. High risk is often a very wishy-washy term. They say things like active drug use, socioeconomic factors, and uh, risk for being exposed to tuberculosis on a recurrent basis. Um, so we in my clinic, which is at San Francisco General, have a policy of testing everyone yearly because we do have a higher risk population. Uh, I think that that would be too much for many patients who have been tested once and have no ongoing risk factors for re-exposure to TB. Once you're positive, the patient is positive for a tuberculin skin test or IGRA, and you've convinced yourself that it's not a false positive, there really is no role at this point in time for serial testing with tuberculin skin tests or IGRAs to monitor the response to therapy. 
It may be that we'll become smarter with understanding how to use these IGRAs to monitor um, re-exposure or response to therapy, but right now the bulk of the data that we have suggests that we're not able to do this in a reliable way. So don't resend quantiferon tests if you believe them after the first time around. Don't resend them to see if someone's reverted to negative and then test them to, to use it again for re-exposure to TB because it's not been shown to be effective. And just a reminder that for HIV-infected individuals who've had a close contact to an active TB case, you're supposed to treat them for LTBI once you've ruled out active TB, regardless of their tuberculin skin test or IGRA status, um, because people with HIV are at higher risk of acquiring and progressing to active tuberculosis. Um, so don't feel reassured if the PPD or the IGRA comes back negative. If someone really is exposed uh, to a high-risk patient, uh, the recommendation is for them to be prophylaxed treated for LTBI. So in this gentleman, his uh, quantiferon comes back indeterminate, um, and six months later, his T-cell count is now 260, and his viral load is suppressed. You repeat his quanti in accordance with the guidelines, and it's now positive. He's U.S.-born, and he has no identified risk factors other than being HIV positive. You choose to repeat because you are a little bit skeptical of this, uh, this association with possible uh, 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 false positives, and he's still quantiferon positive. So now what should you do? He says to you, because he's a smart guy and he Googles a lot and uh, says, I know you're going to want to give me um, drugs. I want the new quick treatment where I get one, one dose a week for, for, um, for 12 weeks. Um, and so that's what I've decided that I'm going to take. Uh, so let's talk briefly about the regimens for LTBI and HIV infection. So the one that we have probably the most data for is a nine-month regimen of isoniazid. Um, and I just want to point out that it's a recommended nine months for all people um, being treated for uh, TB, for latent tuberculosis. This is three months longer than it used to be for people who don't have HIV. But that's because we have increasing data suggesting that six to 12 months is ideal uh, for people without HIV infection, but that nine months in HIV infection is probably adequate. We don't have to go out to 12 months. So partly for simplicity and partly because of the uh, existing data, the recommendation is now nine months for everyone, including those with HIV infection. All HIV-infected patients are recommended to get B6 because they may have an increased risk of uh, developing peripheral neuropathy, and it's a pretty benign intervention. We worry a lot about hepatotoxicity with INH, but the truth is, is that um, it, it's not all that common. Uh, the times when I worry the most about this are if patients have um, hepatitis C or other known liver infection, and those are individuals that I will follow more closely with LFTs. But if the baseline um, LFTs are normal, uh, there really is a very limited role for checking uh, re uh, repeated LFTs in these patients, as long as you're checking in with them and making sure they don't have any clinical signs or symptoms of hepatotoxicity. For people who can't tolerate INH, uh, the recommendation is for rifampin or for rifibutin. Rifibutin, we extrapolate from the active TB literature, and we use this as a substitute, but there's not as much data. And I would caution you to make sure you've gone over all the drug-drug interactions that are protean with rifampin uh, and with rifibutin with the current antiretrovirals that we use. Unfortunately, you'll notice that what's not on this list is the newly approved INH and rifapentine combination, which can be given once weekly. The real problem with this is that rifapentine also has a number of drug-drug interactions with antiretroviral therapies, but we just haven't characterized them nearly as well. 
So the current recommendations are not to give rifapentine outside of clinical trials, both for active TB uh, due to some risks of acquired rifampin resistance with active TB or in latent tuberculosis because we just don't know how well the drug works and what uh, adverse events it will cause. Um, but this is an area of active investigation. Hopefully we'll be able to offer him uh, regimens based on rifapentine that are shorter in the future. And just a reminder that the four-month regimen of PZA and rifampin is no longer recommended. It is shorter and did have less toxicity in HIV-infected patients, but is not recommended due to an unacceptably high level of hepatotoxicity. So let's move on to talking about treatment of active tuberculosis. This is a 23-year-old gentleman, Brazilian guy, who recently moved to the U.S., quite ill when he presents to the ER, fever, cough, night sweats, severely debilitated. He's wasted. He has lymphadenopathy and hepatosplenomegaly. He was smear negative, but TB was suspected. Um, and he's empirically started on uh, TB therapy, which is a good thing because he ended up being culture positive, both from his sputum and from his blood. He's HIV positive, and this is also his index diagnosis, and his T cell count comes in at two. And the question is, when should you start antiretroviral therapy in this gem gentleman who has um, quite ill from his TB and has been started on four-drug therapy for presumed drug-sensitive TB? We finally have an answer to this question, uh, which was, I think, a long time coming, and we used to have very heated hallway discussions about whether it was better to wait and spare people the toxicity and it would be too overwhelming for them to take all of these medications. But we finally have the data from three randomized controlled trials um, that show us that uh, 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 starting earlier antiretroviral therapy, and by this I mean within two weeks of starting TB treatment, is associated with a decreased uh, uh, rate of mortality and of AIDS-defining illnesses. In these two studies, they looked at patients with a T-cell count of 200 to 250 or less, and when they looked at all comers, they didn't find a statistically significant difference, but when they looked at people who had a T-cell count of less than 50, so really quite severely ill, um, they found a statistically significant decrease in mortality in one of the studies and a combined endpoint of mortality and AIDS-defining illness. So I think this really helps to put the argument to rest. Um, so the first slide was showing all comers, and the second slide is showing individuals who have a T-cell count of less than 50. And you can see that the range of the decrease in mortality and uh, mortality with AIDS-defining illness is decreased anywhere from 30 to 68%. Um, and I think that this has really put the issue to rest uh, for these patients uh, that they should be started early, even though it may come um, with uh, an increased pill burden and concerns about overlapping uh, drug toxicities. Um, I'm always stunned when I look at these data to see that there's so much of a difference in mortality from a six-week difference in the intervention, and I don't think we have an answer to this question, why does it make such a difference starting people six weeks earlier? Um, and you can see, and this is from one of the studies, the STRIDE study, uh, these are people who are started later, and this is their risk of AIDS-defining illness or death, and this is starting them uh, earlier with a T-cell count of less than 50 and later. This is all based on a six-week uh, six difference. So I think that the, the preliminary answer to this is just that patients are so vulnerable during this time, and anything we can do to help reverse the immune suppression due to both HIV as well as to their TB, which we're treating, um, makes a tremendous difference uh, down the road. So what is the cost or the trade-offs for starting people earlier? And as I, as I uh, alluded to previously, there certainly has been a lot of debate of the downsides of starting people early on antiretroviral therapy. Um, and I think there is, uh, I wanted to discuss some of the data that we have for these trade-offs in terms of the rates of immune reconstitution, the ART response, concerns about drug toxicity, and effect on TB. 
So we do know pretty unequivocally that TB iris, which is immune reconstitution syndrome, so this paradoxical, really robust inflammatory response to TB, occurs more frequently in patients who have a lower T cell count and who start antiretroviral therapy in closer proximity to the start of their TB therapy. Um, and this is unfortunately just something that we're going to have to deal with when we start people earlier. The rates are doubled, and this is in two of the studies that we see. It's about twice as high um, in, this, uh, in both of these studies in the green when the antiretroviral therapy is started earlier versus later. Um, the good news is, though, is that TB virus is usually not life-threatening, and while it can be morbid and difficult to handle from both a provider and a patient perspective, um, it, it usually does not contribute to death, and usually people can treat through this. Uh, so it's something that you need to counsel your patients about, but that by and large we can get through. What about the effect on HIV? Uh, and I think that the good news is, is that there was no difference in the response in these three studies in terms of the HIV viral load suppression or the CD4 cell count. And there really wasn't a difference, which was really surprising to many, in terms of drug toxicity. So despite giving a lot of drugs um, to the patients who were randomized to, to start ART very close in proximity to TB therapy, there wasn't an increase in the grade 3 and 4 adverse events. So I think that is really quite good news. It doesn't help the TB outcomes to start antiretroviral therapy earlier, so we didn't see an increased um, uh, rapidity in the time of clearance of the TB culture, um, but uh, uh, certainly didn't seem to hurt it either. But I don't think we can make an argument that we're helping people's TB uh, uh, treatment by giving them ART earlier. We're just helping them not to develop HIV and, and most importantly, helping to avert mortality. So I think in this gentleman with a low T cell count, um, he should start ART um, immediately um, or as soon as he has settled down from uh, uh, getting started on his TB therapy, so within the first two weeks. What that means is that the genotype probably won't be back if this is someone who's been newly diagnosed with HIV. So you're going to have to make some empiric decisions about regimens that you feel comfortable with given the epidemiology of transmitted drug resistance uh, in, your, in your community. Um, but that the optimal timing you really have to plan for um, would be starting within two weeks um, and then modifying his ART once you have the genotype back. So what if we changed this gentleman to someone who had a higher T-cell count? So his T-cell count is now 480, and he shows up with smear-positive TB that's focused in the lungs, which would be a more common presentation at a higher T-cell count. He started on a four-drug four TB therapy. Now when do you decide to start antiretroviral therapy, um, and how long can you wait? Because certainly it's nice to uh, delay this, uh, if nothing more than for the patient's peace of mind in trying to absorb these two diagnoses, um, but to avoid the overlapping drug toxicities in managing two complicated regimens. So I think we also have the answers to this question, um, finally, after a number of uh, randomized controlled trials. And this comes from the SAPIT study, which randomized individuals to early, again, within two weeks, versus later, 8 to 10 weeks, and they had patients who had a T-cell count of up to 500. And so what they found is when they started people during the time, um, I'm sorry, they also had an arm where they waited till patients completed their TB therapy and then started antiretroviral therapy, with the thought being, well, gosh, maybe people really can wait to finish their TB treatment uh, before they start antiretroviral uh, therapy. That was called the integrated 
the sequential therapy arm is when they waited to complete six months of TB therapy versus the integrated therapy arm. And this is a Kaplan-Meier curve with the probability of survival. You can see that there really was quite a big difference between um, in the mortality rates between people who waited to complete their therapy versus those who started on therapy. And as I presented earlier, they also found a benefit to starting earlier in patients who had a T-cell count of less than 50. So I think this study really helped put to rest any questions about whether or not we can wait to complete TB therapy, even in patients with a high T-cell count. And while most of the mortality in this study was focused in people with a T-cell count of less than 200, they still found a statistically significant difference in patients with a T-cell count above 200 who were uh, started earlier um, versus later, and certainly in patients who waited till after TB therapy. They had an unacceptably high mortality rate. So um, we also see this in a study that was conducted um, in Uganda where they randomized people to starting ART immediately versus um, waiting until their T-cell count dropped below 250. And these were patients who all had a T-cell count of above 350 at the time of enrollment. And they found that there was um, a significant difference in the time to uh, death and uh, to a new AIDS-defining illness. Again, demonstrating that starting antiretroviral therapy during TB treatment really um, is of benefit in TB-infected patients. So in this gentleman who has a high T-cell count, I think that the take-homes are that no, we shouldn't wait until he's completed his TB treatment to start his antiretroviral therapy. We can get an HIV genotype, but probably have the luxury of waiting until it comes back before we start antiretroviral therapy. But that in taking the current uh, data into consideration, the recommendation is to try to start antiretroviral therapy between two and eight weeks from the time of starting his uh, TB treatment. And just to keep in mind, since you have a little bit of luxury of time, that is, antiretroviral regimen may require um, some adaptation depending on what antiretro uh, the, the TB regimen may require some adaptation depending on what the antiretroviral regimen you're going to use. So, for example, if you're going to use a Proteus inhibitor, you may want to switch him now to rifabutin, knowing that it may take several weeks for those enzymes to de-escalate when you remove rifampin. So I wanted to spend the uh, remaining few minutes that I have talking about drug-drug interactions and what to choose when we start antiretroviral therapy in patients who are on TB medications. This is the part where people usually start to roll their eyes and say, couldn't I get somebody else to do this for me? Um, but what I'll say is that as the HIV providers, um, we're really in an important position here um, in terms of uh, making sure that patients are on the least toxic regimens that they can be on, and that in the TB world, Treatment for drug-sensitive TB tends to be pretty formulaic, and they don't have the ability to tailor their therapy. So a lot of the tolerability and uh, minimizing drug toxicity falls to us to make sure that patients can get through this therapy uh, in the least toxic way possible. So some of the general principles just to keep in mind is that rifampin is really the bad actor here. It's a potent inducer of CYP3A4 and interacts with a number of ART drugs. Some of the interactions we uh, know quite well, and some of them are poorly characterized and we may not receive more information about. Rifabutin is often used as an alternative because it's a less potent inducer of CYP3A4 than rifampin, and it's the preferred agent in patients who are treated with the protease inhibitor, um, but there also have been concerns raised with rifabutin, and we may not know how to dose it ideally. Um, ART and TB treatment regimens may require dose adjustment not just of the antiretroviral portion, but also of the TB portion. So particularly here in the United States where our HIV and TB are often treated by two separate providers, it's so important that we're in contact with each other. We talk about this a lot outside of the U.S., but I think it's perhaps even more important inside the U.S. because really big mistakes can occur. 
Um, we don't have much data for the use of rifapentine, and I would discourage the use of that agent uh, if you have alternatives. And then, unfortunately, all the possible drug-drug interactions aren't available. So what ART to start at this point? I think it's really emerged um, in the data that we have available from the last several years that efavirenz is the preferred antiretroviral treatment um, uh, during TB treatment. We know that rifampin can reduce efavirenz levels um, slightly, so about 78% um, uh, uh, the area under the curve is about 78% what you would see in patients who aren't on um, uh, rifampin at the time of treatment. But we now have some large clinical studies that show that efavirenz-based antiretroviral therapy in patients on a TB regimen are the same as those who aren't on a TB regimen receiving efavirenz. Um, so similar uh, CD4 cell counts and similar HIV virologic suppression. There had been a recommendation that patients increase their efavirenz to 800 milligrams um, to overcome this decrease uh, in the rifampin levels, but we know that this in some studies can be associated with an increase in, in uh, CNS side effects. If you choose to use rifabutin um, because of drug-drug interactions, the rifabutin has to be increased, but there's a much smaller body of evidence to support use of rifabutin with efavirenz, um, so I would stay away from that. So I think that at this point in time, efavirenz 600 milligrams plus rifampin is a preferred HIV-TB regimen. And many of you may be saying, but wait, I just got something in my mailbox saying that if my patient weighs more than 50 kilograms, I should be giving them 800 milligrams of, uh, of efavirenz um, to overcome this drug-drug uh, interaction. I think many of us were very puzzled when we received this uh, Dear Doctor letter from the FDA. And the short version is, is that I think this was based on a very limited data set of white patients from Spain, as well as from some drug modeling um, that was done. And that in general, for Asian and black patients for whom we have the most data, and there's some complex um, uh, genetic uh, uh, alleles that uh, affect the drug levels of efavirenz that may be more common in Asian and black patients, that 600 milligrams is preferred. If you have an obese white patient who has TB, um, and I don't take care of a lot of obese TB patients, but they, they may be out there, there may be a role for efavirenz drug monitoring um, or choosing a different agent, but by and large, I think that the, the majority of the data would support 600 milligrams rather than 800 milligrams. Nevirapine is um, uh, an alternative NNRTI, but there's some issues uh, with starting nevirapine when someone's already on rifampin due to induction of the enzymes um, that help to metabolize nevirapine. And if you use standard lead-in dosing for nevirapine, uh, there's a suggestion that you get more uh, suboptimal outcomes with, uh, with the nevirapine-based ART. So this is not recommended, but if you try and boost up the levels and not do lead-in dosing, you get more hepatotoxicity and more hypersensitivity. So if you have alternatives, which in the U.S. we usually do, I would stay away from nevirapine um, as, a, as a treatment option as we have some other options that are, uh, that are uh, uh, I think, more easily monitored and safer to give. Many times if patients can't take efavirenz rather than doing nevirapine, they move to a protease inhibitor. And um, the protease inhibitors just across the board cannot be given with rifampin because the levels are too low of the protease inhibitors. Rifabutin has um, largely been the, the alternative and in general um, works quite well, but the issues uh, are twofold, I would say, with rifabutin. One is that it needs to be dose adjusted, and what that dose adjustment should be is a little bit of, a, uh, of an ongoing controversy, but currently it's recommended to be 150 milligrams. It, you know, it just changed in the DHHS guidelines to once daily, and I'll tell you why that is, and this was an older slide that I should have amended. Um, but because you're dose reducing the rifabutin, you have to remember that if your patient says, you know what, doc, I can't stand this proteus inhibitor, forget it, um, I'm going to want to switch to raltegravir now, 
all of a sudden someone who was on an adequate dose of rifibutin is now on half the dose that they needed, so you may jeopardize their TB therapy. So if you're going to change their antiretroviral therapy, you need to let the TB doc know um, that, that you're making a change that would mandate an increase of the rifibutin or a change back to rifampin. The other concern with the use of rifibutin with the protease inhibitors is an emerging body of data suggesting that 150 every other day is going to lead, uh, has led to acquired rifampin resistance, which in general is pretty uncommon, suggesting that the levels are too low uh, of, uh, of the rifibutin. They've recently changed this to, to reflect that it should be 150 every day. Whether that's the right dose, we really don't know. Um, so I think we need to be careful with this, and for this reason, if efavirenz can be given, um, efavirenz with rifampin is preferred, but I think that uh, a proteus inhibitor with rifibutin is an acceptable alternative. You just need to monitor these folks closely. And I would say the same thing if you had an obese patient or if you had concerns about volume distribution, that increasing the rifibutin dose with close monitoring might be, uh, might be merited. What about raltegravir in the rifamycins? Um, raltegravir is attractive because it um, has less overlap uh, and is uh, uh, in terms of the, the drug metabolism pathways, and it's not a CYP3A4 substrate or inducer. Um, however, we do know that co-administration with rifampin does still reduce raltegravir troughs, and that doubling the dose of raltegravir uh, to 800 milligrams twice a day helps to mitigate this somewhat, but not entirely. It's unclear if this needs to be done at all, and there's an ongoing clinical trial to uh, inform us whether we need to bump raltegravir up to 800 twice a day. But for now, that is the recommendation, and I would monitor, uh, monitor folks uh, closely. Um, raltegravir and rifapentine um, is uh, probably not going to be an option, um, so this is not a way around. Uh, so if people are taking raltegravir, we often feel like, oh, well, there's no drug interactions with raltegravir. Maybe I can get away with giving that rifapentine once a week for latent TB treatment, and I would not recommend that because raltegravir does appear to be decreased by, um, uh, by rifapentine uh, in, in a way that is probably going to be clinically meaningful. So this is just meant to be a summary um, uh, out there for your reference of the different drug categories, and green meaning that it's probably okay to co-administer, yellow meaning use with caution, and red don't use at all. So just going through the NNRTIs, as I highlighted, efavirenz and rifampin is probably okay. If you use efavirenz with rifibutin, I would do so with caution and increase the rifibutin. Nevirapine, I think there's uh, a lot of caution here. We don't have great data for nevirapine with rifibutin. We have no data for etrovirin and ropivirin, so I would really stay away with these two agents with rifampin and very limited data with rifibutin. Um, so again, we tend to go back to older agents um, when we're co-treating TB and HIV. With the protease inhibitors, rifampin really uh, we like to stay away from unless we have to, and um, if there are no alternatives, we can super boost these agents, but it leads to more hepatotoxicity and less tolerability. Remember to decrease the rifibutin if you give it with a protease inhibitor. How much is an area of, uh, of active debate? The good news is, is that we're starting to get data for raltegravir and one of the newer agents that you heard about today, dolutegravir, uh, about the drug interactions with rifampin. We really lack drug-drug interaction uh, data with rifibutin. And furvatide, which we rarely use um, anymore, luckily uh, has almost no drug interaction data, uh, no drug interactions with rifampin and rifibutin, so that is good news. Uh, and maraviroc, you do need to dose adjust. So, oops. 
I'm going to just close with this one uh, last slide before uh, my summary statement, which is that um, I think that it's very heartening in, in recent years that not only um, do we know better how to care for our patients and treat them for latent tuberculosis and treat them when they have active tuberculosis, but it's become very clear that HIV treatment itself um, is prevention for TB. And again, the U.S. is in a highly uh, TB endemic uh, uh, location, but certainly TB is an issue um, worldwide uh, that uh, causes a lot of death and disability in our patients. And so we know from the CIPRA um, HTO1 study that starting patients on antiretroviral therapy at a T cell count of above 200 instead of below 200 reduced the incidence of TB by 50%. Not a huge surprise because uh, we, we do know that uh, there that starting on people on ART below 350 in many, many situations um, is associated with decreased opportunistic infections and an improvement in mortality. But in the HPTN study, which got a lot of press this summer when it was released, starting HIV um, treatment in patients with a T-cell count of above 350 who were in discordant partnerships not only reduced the transmission of HIV to the uh, discordant partner who didn't have HIV, but reduced the uh, uh, presentation of active TB by 50%. So again, TB causes problems in our patients at high T-cell counts as well as low T-cell counts. And with the move in the U.S. towards treating everybody earlier with, um, uh, with HIV, I think we will hopefully see a further reduction in the acquisition of TB and reactivation of TB in our patients. So I will go ahead and uh, stop there and leave my conclusions up on the slide. Thank you for letting me go over a few minutes. Um, and I'm happy to take questions at this time. So can you get a false positive clonopherin test due to a recently placed PPD? Oh, it's a, this is a great question. So we don't think that quantities are boosted uh, by PPD, um, but the recommendation is if you're choosing to plant to do both at the same time for whatever reason, just draw the quantity first and then and then do the PPD due to a theoretical risk. But in general, we do not think that PPDs boost uh, quantiferon. So you should not draw it because of that. Is it okay to use the twice-weekly 900-milligram dose of INH for nine months for LTBI and HIV-infected people? It probably is, yes. Um, I tend to use every day because most of my patients are on HIV medicines, and I have more comfort level with that. But... Uh, we think it's okay to use the twice-weekly INH. I would not use intermittent rifamycins, though, for those patients. And just to kind of read it, do you recommend dual screening for people with less than 200 CD4 cells um, in HIV-infected people with both IGRAs and skin tests? I, I wouldn't do dual screening for those patients. I might consider it in someone who has a T-cell count of less than 50, who I think really has some risk factors, comes from a highly endemic country, and I just don't buy the negative PPD. Um, I think there may be a role in those higher risk patients. I think both tests can very well come back um, as a false negative or an indeterminate in that case, and you may just have to wait. And I didn't get into the use of IGRAs for active TB, but don't forget that they can be negative in both an IGRA and a PPD in the setting of active TB, and that's an Im immunologic phenomenon. So about 25% of people will be negative. So don't use these tests to, uh, to rule out active TB. That's, that's not an appropriate use of them. And for RNH and rifapine team, do you use DOT? And if so, who does it? Well, so I don't use it because I'm an HIV uh, provider, so we don't have data to use this in our HIV patients who are on antiretroviral therapy. Um, but my understanding is that if they, as they've rolled this out, they've been doing it through mostly TB clinics where they just dispense it once a week and, and give it to patients. Is there a role for this in the HIV-infected world? Sure, once we figure out better to use these. Uh, but it's not me who's doing the DOT yet. But maybe... And how do you dose rifibutin for LTBI? 
Um, it depends on what other drugs um, they are on, but it's usually 300 milligrams. But if you need, if they're on antiretroviral therapy, you dose it the same way that you would dose it just for active TB treatment. So if they're on a PI, I do 150 every day. If they're on a Fabrins, I'll go up to 450 milligrams. Yeah. Okay, other questions? All right, thank you very much. Great.